Well, why don't we get started with a word of prayer? It's good to have you folks here in person, and welcome to everyone who's on Zoom as well. Uh, as always, I just want to dedicate this time to the Lord, uh, trusting mm -hmm. that He will be here as well, and trusting that He will speak to us through His Word. So, Heavenly Father, we do just want to come into Your presence thanking You, uh, acknowledging how good You are to us, and uh, acknowledging uh, the many ways that You have reached out to us. Uh, we thank you, Father, for giving us grace, for giving us mercy, uh, for showing us compassion. We thank you, Lord God, for being patient with us, for being kind to us. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you have done all that was needed for us to be able to approach you, to draw close to you. Even now, Father, as we are talking to you, because we are coming to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, we know that our prayers are being heard and they are being received as a pleasing aroma of incense uh, as you are seated on your throne at the center of the universe. Our prayers are going up to you right now, and we are just so grateful to you for that. Father, we are grateful as well for the blessing that it is to be able to come together as your people, to have a relationship and friendships within the body of Christ, to have folks that we are uh, connected to as sisters and brothers adopted into your family. We are grateful for the blessing of being able to study your word together. And thank you for the things, Lord God, that you reveal to us and speak to us and show us when we study your word. And so, Father, again, we pray as we have often prayed that tonight you would help us. Help us to understand your word correctly. Help us to rightly apply your word to our lives and to others in our lives, Lord God. So we pray that you would help us to be attentive to what you are saying to us through your Holy Spirit. We are excited, Lord, of the good things that are in your heart for us. We are desiring to draw close to you, knowing that you will draw close to us. And so, Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Well, what we have been talking about uh, the last couple times that we have met is the theme of final judgment. So one of the sheets that's on the table in the back is the sheet at the top that says final judgment part two. We've worked our way through most of that. There are a couple of passages at the bottom that we want to look at tonight and finish up with that. So when we were concluding our time together a couple of weeks ago, we were reading the 1 Corinthians 3 passage. And remember, that was talking about how there's only one foundation that has been laid, and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation upon which we can build, upon which we can base the foundation of our life. There's only Jesus Christ. And then remember, the Apostle Paul went on to say that we should choose carefully or consider carefully what we will build with. And then he talked about different building materials. He talked about wood and straw and hay. And then he talked about silver and gold and precious stones. And then he said on the day, which of course we understand now is the day of judgment, all of our works will be tested with fire. And obviously, when fire is put on wood, straw, or hay, those materials are consumed, and so they will not last. 
but when fire is put to gold and silver and precious stones, the fire actually refines those and those things will endure. So again, we are given another place where the scriptures clearly teach that on the day of final judgment, we will be judged, we will be evaluated on how we have lived our life. Now what the Apostle Paul said in the conclusion of that 1 Corinthians 3 passage is that even if your works are burned up, you will be saved, but it will be as if by fire. And so of course we don't want to live our life devoting our time and energy and attention to things that will not last. We want to be devoting our life to putting our time and energy and effort into things that will endure. Remember, one of the things that we were emphasizing when we met a couple of weeks ago is that the fact that we will be judged by what we do, that our works will be judged, does not contradict the gospel of grace. We are still 100% saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and by our faith in Him. We are not saved by what we do. We are not saved by our works or our actions. Remember in Revelation, the vision that the Lord gave to John was of the book of life. Everyone whose name is written in the book of life will be saved. So all of us who have received the gracious gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, all of us who have invited Jesus to be Lord of our lives and to rule over us and take up residence in our hearts, all of us who have done that, we are saved by grace and our name is written in the book of life. But remember in the vision that John saw in Revelation, it says that other books were opened. And those other books were the recording of everything that we have done, even every word that we have spoken and every thought that we have thought. And so even though we are saved by grace, we will be judged by what we have done. And of course, the idea is that there will be rewards for how we have lived our lives. Part of that is based on the gifts and the talents and the calling that the Lord has given us. We may think of the parable of the talents where different amounts are given to different individuals. So what the Lord expects of us is to be faithful with what he's given us. And what he has given one may be different than what he has given another. We are not going to be held responsible for someone else's gifts. The Lord doesn't expect me to walk in Carl's gifts. The Lord doesn't expect me to fulfill Beth's calling. The Lord has given me gifts, has given me talents, has given me a calling. He expects me to be faithful to what he has given me. And even though I am completely saved by grace, I'm absolutely going to be judged on what I have done with the opportunities and the life and the gifting that God has given me. And there will be an incredible sense of reward for all of the things that I have done that were using what God has given me. But the clear warning of 1 Corinthians 3 is that if we live our life foolishly, if we waste our time, if we waste the opportunities that God has given us, even though we will be saved because we are saved by grace, not by what we do, there will be a sense of loss. 
You know, I can't imagine what it would be like to be standing before the Lord on the day of judgment and having all of my life's work being burned up in the fire. But that is certainly the picture that the Lord gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we want to make sure that we understand that even though we will be judged by the Lord for what we have done in this life, salvation is not by works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That cannot be anything that we contribute to with our effort or our striving. But once we have been saved by grace, we absolutely will be judged by how we have lived our life. Okay? So at the bottom of that sheet, at the top it says Final Judgment Part 2, point number 11. This says gradations of punishment. And I just want to read these two verses from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. And what this is basically saying is that just as believers will receive different rewards, not everyone's reward is identical, unbelievers will experience different levels of punishment. And here Jesus very, very clearly speaks of that. So again, on the sheet that we're using, this is point number 11, Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. It says, that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So Jesus here is talking about punishment. And he basically talks about two different types of punishment for two different types of wicked or disobedient servants. So in verse 47... He talks about the one who knew what his master expected and did not do it. And Jesus says he will be beaten with many blows. In verse 48, it talks about the servant who didn't know but still did what was deserving of punishment. So he didn't know but he still did what was wicked. He still did what was deserving of punishment. So he will be beaten with less blows. So what we see here, again, it's not incredibly detailed. It's not super expanded. And it should be, you know, kind of common sense to us that because God is just, and because we understand that God does not reward every one of his servants equally, but there are varying levels of reward. It would make sense because of the character of God that God does not punish every unbeliever with the same severity of punishment. Now again, this is incredibly 
simple and not very detailed, so I don't want to expand on it much more than what I've already done, but this is a clear place in Scripture that indicates all punishment is not the same. Now, one thing that we should say in that regard is, you know, in terms of reward, there is a commonality in reward because everyone who has put their faith in Jesus will be in the presence of Jesus forever. So that will be in common. And so how, <coughs> how varying rewards work itself out with everyone being in the presence of Jesus, you know, obviously the Lord himself sorts that out. So in a sense, there is a commonality in punishment in that everyone who is punished is separated from the Lord. But there are different levels of severity to that punishment. And that's what Jesus is indicating in these verses here. That there is a varying level of punishment based on the guilt or the knowledge that the people had of what the Lord was expecting. Okay? So any questions about this point of varying degrees or varying levels of intensity of punishment? This may just be um, a metaphorical example, but the fact that there's blows in heaven is kind of disturbing. No, these are the wicked being punished. Oh, the wicked being punished, not the righteous gradation of punishment. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. This is, this is not a varying degree of reward. This is the, this is the wicked being punished. Then I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Did, was, that, was that not clear that we're talking about the wicked here, not the righteous? These, these are people that have rejected the Lord. We've already looked at, from the previous point, uh, point 10 from 1 Corinthians 3 that there is a varying degree of reward for believers. Jesus is not talking about believers here. Jesus is talking about the punishment of the wicked. And the punishment of the wicked is not identical. And that, again, I mean, that makes sense. Even that, that sense of justice that God has implanted in us resonates with the idea that there are certain people who are deserving of worse punishment. Just like there's certain people who are deserving of greater reward. I mean, when I look at the Apostle Paul, I, I don't even for a moment think that I'm going to have the level of reward that he has. When I look at, you know, the evangelist Billy Graham, I don't even for a second think that you know, my level of reward is going to be equal with Billy Graham because, you know, they have such a more incredible calling and ministry in life. Now, Paul and Billy Graham and I are all going to be in the presence of Jesus, but there certainly are going to be different level rewards. And, I, and again, I don't know how that works. I mean, how is there not jealousy? How is there not envy? How is there not, you know, sorrow that you didn't do more? I mean, again, 1 Corinthians 3, when all of your life works are burned up, there's got to at least be a moment of remorse or sorrow. But in the presence of the Lord, those things obviously do not remain. So again, there's a lot of ways that we can press these and, and come up with at least in my estimation, not a clear answer. You know, what, what actually is going to be the punishment? Is it literally going to be physical blows? I mean, it might be, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is just a metaphor. 
you know, what we're going to look at tonight with eternal punishment, we're going to see that Scripture describes eternal punishment with a couple of different metaphors. Um, so again, I don't want to go beyond just saying that I think what this clearly teaches is that not every unbeliever is punished the same way. But Jesus here is clearly talking about the punishment of the wicked. He's not talking about the fate of the righteous. Okay? But any other questions or comments about that before we finish up the, the last couple of points on this sheet? Okay. If someone would be willing to turn to Matthew 11, verses 20 to 22, and to read that for us. So the last point we're going to make here about final judgment is basically the point that one of the standards of judgment is revelation. One of the standards of judgment is revelation. We've seen that we are going to be judged by what we do. We are going to be judged by what we say. We are going to be judged by what we think. Everything that's done in secret is going to be revealed on the day of judgment. But another thing that the New Testament clearly teaches that another standard of judgment is what we are aware of, what we know, what has been revealed to us. Remember, that's even what Jesus said in the passage that we just looked at. The servant who knows the will of his master and doesn't do it versus the servant who doesn't know but still does what is deserving of punishment. So we want to look at a couple passages of Scripture that talk about this idea that revelation is a standard of judgment. So does someone have Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 20 and 22, ready to read for us? Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and 22, would someone be willing to read that for us? When Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Okay. So Jesus is talking here about four different cities. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. So he's talking about four different cities. The first two that he mentions are the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Okay? And he is condemning them. And he's talking about incredible miracles that were done in them. So again, we may not be familiar with them, but these are cities in which Jesus performed many miracles. So he is condemning them for their hardness of heart because many miracles were performed in them. Then he makes reference to two other cities, to Tyre, and Sidon. Now these are actually cities that appear somewhat regularly in the Old Testament. 
So they were cities that are actually on the, the Mediterranean uh, in the northern part of Israel. Both of them are coast cities, and they were city-states. So when you see the prophets making judgments against the countries that surrounded Israel, oftentimes you will hear Tyre and Sidon mentioned. And what he is saying is that Chorazin and Bethsaida are going to experience worse judgment on the day of judgment. Again, looking at verse 22. It says, But I tell you it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. So all of these cities are going to be judged. But it's going to go better for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. Why? Because the level of revelation that these cities received, because the Son of God was present in those cities and performed many miracles in those cities, that was way more revelation than was given to Tyre and Sidon. So when God stands in judgment over all of these cities, it's actually going to go better for these guys because they didn't have the level of accountability that these two cities had. So again, the point that's being made here, at least part of the point, <coughs> is that how much is revealed to you is one of the standards of how you are judged. How much is revealed to you is one of the standards by which you are judged. So because Chorazin and Bethsaida were both cities that saw the incarnate Christ, that saw many, many, many miracles that he performed and rejected him, it's actually going to be harder for them on the day of judgment because they were given a greater opportunity to know the truth. And they rejected it. Now, Tyre and Sidon are not going to get off the hook. If you read the Old Testament prophets that prophesy against them, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, I mean, God judged them pretty well. But it still is going to go better for them because less was revealed to them. They never had Jesus walk their streets. They never had Jesus perform miracles in their city squares. So what Jesus is saying here is that there is a difference in judgment based on the level of revelation that is given. Okay? Does that make sense? So we are judged by what we do. We are judged by what we say. We are judged by what we think. But we are also judged by how much God has revealed himself to us. And again, that for most of us probably makes sense. God is not going to hold us accountable for what we don't know. Okay? Now, oftentimes what we think next is, well, what about the person who's never heard of the name of Jesus? You know, that's an incredibly important and very challenging question for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Can ignorance save a person? Well, we already saw in Matthew chapter 12 that the servant who did what was deserving of punishment, even though he didn't know as much as the servant who did, he still is punished. So one of the things that the New Testament does not teach is that ignorance can save you. Ignorance 
cannot save. One of the practical ways that we see that working out is with the mission effort of the church. If ignorance could lead to salvation, then why share Jesus with people who have never heard of them? Just let them die in their ignorance and be saved by their ignorance, right? Why is there an effort on the part of the church, and there has been from the very beginning with the original apostles, to tell everyone possible about Jesus? Because ignorance does not save. Now, ignorance may mitigate punishment, but ignorance cannot save. We are only saved by Jesus Christ. We are only saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why, at her best, the church has always made an incredible effort to share the gospel with those who have not heard. You know, many of you are in connection with different mission organizations, and we see the passion that many mission organizations have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone. Why? Because we clearly understand that ignorance is not going to save anyone. Ignorance may lessen punishment, but it will not save. It will not save. That's why Jesus in the Great Commission said, Go into all the world and preach my gospel to every creature. He didn't say, Keep it to yourself. They're better off if they don't know. He said, No. Go and proclaim the gospel to everyone. So ignorance cannot save, but ignorance certainly can lessen the severity of punishment. Okay? Does that make sense? Let's jump to the next one. This next passage is sort of the beginning of a longer passage. We're not going to read it all. But this one is so incredibly important for understanding what we're talking about. This is Romans chapter 1, and we're just going to read verses 18 to 22. It's, again, the beginning of a much longer argument that actually goes all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. But we're just going to read these opening verses because it really starts to help us understand how revelation is a standard by which even unbelievers are judged. So Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 22. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay? So the first thing that the Apostle Paul says here is that wicked people have truth, but they suppress it. So wicked people have truth, but they suppress it. Picking it up in verse 19, it says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So what this says is that God is knowable, because God has made himself plain, or clear, or obvious, even to wicked people, even to the unbelieving world. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
Even wicked people have truth, but they are suppressing it. People know God because He has made it plain. Well, how has He made it plain? Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what he has made so that no one has an excuse. So how has God made himself known? Through creation. Through creation. God has revealed himself. So sometimes what we're talking about here is referred to as general revelation. Or sometimes it is referred to as natural revelation. Okay? In the world that God has made, in the world that every human being who has ever lived in has lived in, God has made Himself known through the creation. And what can be known about Him? Well, the Apostle Paul highlights two things. There's two aspects of God's invisible nature that have been made clear through creation. His eternal power and His divine nature. His eternal power and His divine nature. Some translations say His deity. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is that every person who has ever lived has lived in the world that God has created and through creation itself, God has put Himself on display. His eternal power and His deity. His, his godness, if you want to say. The fact that there is something that is not creation. There is someone that is far greater than creation. Remember in verse 20 it said, His invisible attributes, His power and His deity, they have been put on display in creation. So no one has an excuse. No one can stand before the Lord and say, God, I didn't know. Wrong. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that creation itself, general revelation or natural revelation, is enough of a witness, even to the most wicked of people, that they know the truth. Now, they may not be able to look at a mountain and understand all the intricacies of the gospel, as Paul explains it. But they absolutely know that there is a God. They absolutely know that He is all-powerful, and they absolutely know that they are accountable to Him. Okay? Last verse that we're going to read in this section. Um, verse 21. Yeah, we're just going to read through verse 21, not verse 22. I mean, it obviously it goes on, but we're going to cut it off there. Verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, why is the person who's never heard the name of Christ, who's never had the gospel preached to them, why are they going to be judged? Because there was enough of a witness of God in creation that they knew truth. They didn't know it as fully as we know, who have been studying the Word of God, but they knew it. 
and God will hold them accountable for what they knew. Well, what did they do with that truth? Well, what Paul says is that they chose to reject that truth. They chose to suppress that truth. And what Paul goes on to say is instead of worshiping God, they worshiped idols. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they worshiped creation. God is going to hold them accountable for that. Now remember, we've already looked tonight, there are different levels of punishment. God does not punish every unbeliever with equal severity. Remember, these two groups of cities, different levels of punishment. Luke chapter 12, the passage that we read, different levels of punishment. But what this says is that no one has an excuse. No one is going to be able to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, Lord, I didn't know. God is going to say, no, you did. Because in creation itself, you could see my character. You chose to reject that. So again, just emphasizing the point that ignorance does not save. Only Jesus saves. Generally speaking, general revelation is enough to condemn. It's not enough to save. There needs to be what is oftentimes referred to as special revelation. Special revelation is that incredible gift of God where He reveals more of Himself in such a way that we are now able to be saved. Now what Paul says later in Romans is normally special revelation comes through a preacher. How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone goes? And how will someone go unless they are sent? The normal way that someone receives that special revelation that leads to salvation is through a preacher. That's why missionaries are going all over the world, are going into hard places, are going into remote places, are learning challenging languages. Why? Because the normal way that people are saved is when a preacher comes and proclaims the gospel. They will be held accountable for what they know in creation, but the witness of God in creation is not enough to bring them to salvation. Now, we've all heard stories that there are exceptions where special revelation comes without a preacher. God has appeared to people in dreams. He can do that. God has proclaimed the gospel to people in dreams. I remember hearing a story years ago that there were some missionaries in a very, very remote part of Southeast Asia, and they arrived in a village, and the villagers said, we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Uh, the name that they had, I forget what the name was, the, the heavenly being or the heavenly whatever, told us that you were going to come and tell us about his son. Now, they didn't call him God or Heavenly Father. I don't remember what the name they had for him was. But God had revealed to them that some people were going to come and tell them about his son. And they did. So, special revelation can come to people in any way that God chooses. Normally, it comes through the proclamation of the gospel through flesh and blood humans. But it can come any way that he wants. But what we're seeing here in Romans is that Everyone knows enough to be condemned. No one can stand before the Lord and say, I didn't know anything. And God will say, you're right, your ignorance is going to save you. Because what can be known about God is eternal power and His deity 
have been made plain in the world that he has created. And all humanity is held accountable for that truth, for that understanding, and what they did with it. And what they did with it is that they suppressed it. They rejected it. And they worshipped creation rather than the creator. Okay? Let's look at the last passage of Romans, and then I'll pause just to see if there's any comments or questions. So the last passage of Romans that we're going to look at is Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. So just a chapter later. And this says some incredible things about how all of humanity is accountable to the Lord. And really, all humanity knows better. No one can stand before the Lord and say, hey, I didn't know anything. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, 14 to 16. It says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, so what he is talking about now is when Gentiles who did not receive the law of Moses, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people received the law of Moses. That was a special revelation to the nation of Israel. Every nation on the planet was not gathered at Mount Sinai when God came down and spoke the law through Moses. Only the nation of Israel. So the law of Moses was special revelation. The Gentiles did not receive the law of Moses. Israel did. So again, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is incredibly, incredibly profound, what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, Gentiles who had never heard of the law of Moses still kept aspects of the law of Moses. If you look at the world today, almost every culture has certain things in common. Almost every culture condemns murder. Almost every culture condemns stealing. There are certain things that we see in cultures that have had no exposure to the law of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, there are certain aspects of those cultures that reflect the truth revealed in those things. And the Apostle Paul is saying, in that way, they become a law unto themselves. So the Gentiles are not going to be judged by the law of Moses because they didn't know the law of Moses. But they did have a sense of right and wrong. And by nature... They did adhere to many of the principles in the law. In almost every culture, if someone walks up and hits somebody else, that is not okay. So we see this. We see that in reality, there are aspects of the law that manifest themselves in every culture, even if the law has not been explicitly given to them. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So going on in verse 15, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So the Apostle Paul is saying here that every human being has a conscience. 
And that conscience is a little bit of the knowledge of God in terms of what is right and what is wrong. Every human being has a conscience. There is not a single human being that has been made in the likeness and image of God that does not have a conscience. Now it's interesting because what the Apostle Paul says is their thoughts tear them apart. Because sometimes their thoughts say that what they're doing is wrong. But then oftentimes what their thoughts say is what they are doing is right. They don't have that clear revelation of right and wrong the way a believer does. So this is not the way Jeremiah prophesied about the law being written on the believer's hearts. But this is a partial copy of that. The unbeliever has a conscience. And part of that conscience that God has given them gives them the ability at times to recognize right and wrong. And that's why sometimes they do things and feel guilty about it. But because they're not saved, because they haven't been born again, because the Holy Spirit has not made them new, oftentimes when they do something in their minds, they just say, that's fine. They excuse it. They defend it. So you see this conflict, and we see it all the time in the unbelieving world. There is a level of morality in most unbelievers. Sometimes they follow it, sometimes they reject it. But you know what the Apostle Paul is saying here is so profound. And so the unbeliever is going to be judged on that conscience that they had. You know, a lot of people, when they break the law, even if they don't know Jesus, they know that they broke the law. They know that they did something wrong. They may try to excuse it, but they still know that it was wrong. Why? Because God gave them a conscience. God gave them, without full special revelation knowledge, God gave them a remnant of the truth so that they knew the difference between right and wrong. Let's conclude then by reading verse 16. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. All humanity is going to be judged. Going to be judged by what they knew in their conscience to be the difference between right and wrong. You see, the incredible, incredible advantage that we have as believers is when we are born again, the law is written on our hearts in such a way that God now empowers us and makes us capable of keeping it. Remember, the biggest problem that Israel had is that the law was outside of them. And so even if they liked it and loved it and wanted to do it, they couldn't ever fully keep it because their hearts had not been changed. So the great advantage that we have as believers is that God has written His law on our hearts and in doing so has given us the ability to keep it. That's the law writing on the heart that Jeremiah prophesied that Hebrews says has been fulfilled in Christ. But what the Apostle Paul says here is that every unbeliever has a conscience. And they know better. They don't live by it, but there are times that they feel guilty for the wrong things they do. There are times that they defend themselves and excuse themselves and say that's fine. But deep down in their conscience, they know right and wrong. Even Gentiles who didn't receive the law of Moses, when they do what the law requires, they become a law unto themselves. So God's not going to judge the Gentile nations who never heard of the law of Moses by the law of Moses, but He is going to judge them by the conscience of right and wrong that they had 
that they chose to ignore. Okay? So some pretty deep theology that Paul gives us here in Romans, but it simply reinforces what Jesus himself was saying in Matthew 11. That you are going to be judged based on the level of revelation of truth that you have received. Okay? Any comments or questions about any of this last point? Make sense? Excellent. Excellent. Well, if there's no comments or questions, let's press on to the next. Oh, is there someone on Zoom? Yeah, Ted, you have a question? Yeah, can you hear me, Dave? I can hear you. Oh, good. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes I think we think that God's judgment uh, shows that he's sort of nasty and vindictive and mean, and we, we like to think of God as being a God of love. But, you know, God's judgment is really another expression of his love because, um, you know, in Hebrews 12, where it talks about um, accepting the discipline of the Lord, that the Lord, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. And, uh, you know, he's going to judge all, all men's hearts. But, um, you know, we can do like I think Dan was preaching recently from Psalm 139 and invite the Lord to judge us now. Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Judge me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You know, judgment begins with the household of God. And we think, well, you know, God's going to judge the wicked, but God's going to judge us. And, and he is. So it all, it all fits together by God's grace. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think, Ted, the only thing that I would maybe add to that is that the judgment of God, the punishment of God, when it gives opportunity for repentance, is a manifestation of his love. But the judgment of God, the punishment of God, that leaves no opportunity for repentance, so final judgment, final punishment, or punishment mm -hmm. that takes human life, that's not a reflection of his love. That's a reflection of his, of his holiness and of his righteousness. So that's mm -hmm. the only thing that maybe I would say a little bit differently. We're going to talk now about eternal punishment. I don't think I would ever say eternal punishment is a reflection of God's love. Eternal punishment is a reflection of God's holiness. But, you know, the point that you were making is that, yes, any punishment short of final punishment, final judgment is a reflection of God's love. For the unbeliever, because it gives them an opportunity to repent. And for the believer, as you were rightly saying, because it gives us an opportunity to be more conformed to the image of Christ. But I think in talking about final punishment or final judgment, I wouldn't necessarily say that's manifesting the love of God. To me, that's much more manifesting His holiness, His righteousness, certainly incredible aspects of His character. But if God punishes someone and gives them an opportunity to repent, that's an amazing display of his love. And if God punishes us as believers, making us more like Jesus Christ, the passage that you quoted from Hebrews, absolutely, that's a reflection of his love for us. So I appreciate you bringing that in, Ted. Thank you. But any other comments or questions about this aspect of final judgment? Just specifically this concept of God judging us based on the revelation that we've received before we jump into uh, eternal punishment? 
So this is the sheet that you grabbed in the back. This is a new sheet. We haven't started this sheet yet. And hopefully Carl has pulled it up for you who are on Zoom. Oh, great. We're gonna start working our way through this. We may finish this tonight. Uh, we may not, we'll just see how the time goes. Now, just by way of introduction, you know, when I was reading uh, a chapter in the book on eschatology that I'm using as a source on eternal punishment, you know, one of the first things that the author said is, you know, this is, this is not an easy thing for us as believers to embrace. I mean, eternity is a really long time. And even trying to conceptualize humans being punished forever, you know, that's an incredibly difficult thing. So we shouldn't accept this as something that's necessarily easy or something that is pleasant or something that in some ways doesn't present some challenges to us. I mean, I think it does present some challenges to us. I think it's a very intimidating truth. But the thing that I would say next is we embrace it because it is true. We embrace it because it is what the scriptures teach. You know, one of the greatest dangers that we always face is that we are tempted to make God be who we want him to be. We are tempted to make the word of God say what we want it to say. And we must always, always fight hard against that impulse to make God what we want him to be to make the word of God say what we want it to say. And so we do everything we can to accept God as he has revealed himself. And we do everything we can to accept the truth that he has revealed to us in his word. There are some things that we may embrace with relative ease and incredible joy. There are other things that we may embrace that are a bit more challenging, a bit more difficult but we embrace them because we are convinced it's the truth of who God is and it's the truth that He's revealed to us in His Word. And what we see in the last couple of hundred years in particular is there are members of the church that have fought against this and have basically rejected it. Not because of sound biblical teaching, not because of sound biblical passages and interpretation of them, but because the thought of it is too hard. The thought of human beings being punished forever is simply too hard. And so they just say, well, God can't be that way. So let's soften this. And we see that cropping up. And so we don't teach this because this, you know, makes us whistle and skip and be full of joy. We teach this because the Word of God teaches it. We teach this because this is how God has revealed Himself. May we always accept the Lord as He is, not as we want Him to be. Okay? But don't feel bad or don't feel ashamed if you think about this and you are like, wow, Lord, this is, this is really severe. This is really intimidating. This is really hard. I think that's a very normal human reaction when we partake in studying this. But if we really believe that the entirety of the Bible is the Word of God, 
we must, over the course of time, study everything that it teaches. We can't just focus on the things that we like, the things that are easy, the things that are pleasant. You know, in our devotional life, we've got to be very careful of that, that we don't just read the passages we love, that we don't just read the books of the Bible that we enjoy, that we read all of it. And so in the course of studying the Word of God, we want to study all of it as well. Okay? So eternal punishment. So the first heading on this sheet is hell or Gehenna. And we're going to take some time to explain what Gehenna is. But in order to do that, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. So we need to have some Old Testament background. And what you see there under Old Testament background is the name of a place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom and Tophet. So in Hebrew, if you wanted to say the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, you would say Gay ben hinom Sometimes it's shortened to simply Gay hinom But in Hebrew, all that means is the Valley of Ben-Hinom or the Valley of Hinom. So what we see first in Joshua 15.8 and 18.16 is that this valley is a real geographical place. Excuse me, 1816, not 1618. So in the book of Joshua, remember Israel has conquered the promised land. And as Joshua is getting close to his death, the promised land is being divided. And both of these passages mention this valley, this valley of Ben-Hinnom, because it actually formed part of the boundary between the territories of Judah and Benjamin. So we'll just read one of them because they're very similar. So Joshua chapter 15, verse 8. This is the boundary for the territory of Judah. It says, and it's talking about the boundary, it says, Then it ran up the valley of Ben-Hinnom, along the southern slope of the Jebusite city, that is Jerusalem. From there it climbed to the top of the hill west of the Hinnom Valley, at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. So what we understand is that Gay Hinnom or Gay Ben Hinnom is actually a real valley. It's a real valley close to the city of Jerusalem. It's actually south, southwest of the city of Jerusalem. So when it's first mentioned in Scripture, it doesn't have any connotation, negative or positive. It's just a valley that formed part of the boundary between Benjamin and Judah. Okay? Now, the next two passages are 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 28.3 and 33.6. These are two passages during the reigns of King Ahaz and King Manasseh. 
and what is going on in the valley of Ben-Hinnom or the valley of Hinnom is absolutely abominable. So what we see now here is there's beginning to be a shift. The valley of Ben-Hinnom or the valley of Hinnom is not just a neutral geographical feature. It's now taking on an incredibly sinister and wicked connotation. So let's just read 2 Chronicles 28.3. It says, He, this is King Ahaz, burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So now this is not a neutral geographical feature. This is now a place where utter wickedness is taking place. Both King Ahaz and King Manasseh sacrificed their own children in this valley. And this is one of the most abominable and wicked things that Scripture mentions. The language that the Lord uses is so strong, it says, that's never anything I asked of you, and it certainly never even entered my mind. Now, of course, that's the Lord just using extreme language, because everything enters the Lord's mind. He knows everything. But it's the Lord using extreme language to say never in a million years would He ever want children to be killed for Him. So now what we see is, as the history of the Old Testament is unfolding, this valley became a place of incredible wickedness. Incredible godlessness. Okay? The last passage we're going to read is in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 30 to 34 just to get a little bit of the context. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 30 to 34, Jeremiah again speaks of this valley. But he's going to add to what is associated with it. It says, The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth, we're not 100% sure what Topheth means, but every time Topheth is mentioned in Scripture, it's associated as a place within the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Okay? They have set up the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of the people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, to the voices of bride and bridegroom, in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. So what the Lord is doing here is He is pronouncing His judgment over this 
place where incredible wickedness had been taking place. And he says this will now become a place of dead bodies. It will become a place initially where dead bodies are buried, but there are going to be so many dead bodies they will be unable to be buried. So it's now a place of judgment. So as the history of the Old Testament unfolds, this valley of Gay Ben Hinnom or Gay Hinnom, that's south southwest of Jerusalem, was not just a neutral valley. It became synonymous with wickedness. And it became an indicator of the incredible judgment of God that was going to righteously fall on sinful Jerusalem. Okay? So by the time the Old Testament is closing, if you mention the valley of Ben-Hinnom, what would immediately come to your mind are these type of images. Utter wickedness, a graveyard, so many dead bodies they can't even be buried, and a place of the judgment of the Lord. Okay? Now in between the Old and New Testament, it seems like this also became a place where trash and refuse were burned. There's no explicit reference in Scripture that says the trash of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas was taken to this valley and burned there, but (coughs) intertestamental sources seem to indicate that that's what was going on. And so the idea was that trash was being burned there constantly. And because trash was being burned, and probably left relatively unattended, there were fires or smoldering or smoke coming out of this valley either constantly or frequently. So again, we're still speaking very much in the natural that during this time between the Old and the New Testament, because trash was being burned there, it was a place of fire and smoke. Okay? So that is some of the background leading up to the New Testament, speaking of hell or Gehenna. But let me just pause there. Are there any questions about this very, very quick Old Testament background about this valley? No? Okay. Well, you can see it, but it's there on the sheet. In your English Bibles, when you see the word hell in your English Bible, and the word hell actually occurs 12 times in the New Testament, the Greek word that stands behind it is the Greek word Gehenna. Well, you can see that the Greek word Gehenna is just the Greek version of the Hebrew Gehenom. Gehenom, remember, is the Hebrew for Valley of Hinnom. So Gehenna is the Greek version of the Valley of Hinnom. So at the time of Jesus, if you were mentioning Gehenna, you had all sorts of negative connotations associated with it. A place of judgment, a place of death, a place of burning. But what Jesus does with it now is takes it beyond the natural to describe the place of eternal punishment. Okay? 
So it's important for us to understand initially it was a reference to a actual valley. But now as Jesus begins to teach about Gehenna, or translated into English, hell, he's not speaking of the valley outside of Jerusalem. He's now speaking of the place of eternal punishment. And of the 12 times that the word Gehenna, or hell, is used in the New Testament, 11 of those times, that word is on the lips of Jesus. No one talked about hell, not even close, more than Jesus. So you may hear the absolutely ridiculous argument that, you know, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. A loving Savior wouldn't send people to hell. Wrong. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. Eleven of the twelve times that the word hell is used in the New Testament, it's on the lips of Jesus. The only time it's not is in James chapter 3, verse 6, where James says the tongue is a fire lit on fire by hell itself. Okay? So, this is the background to this concept of hell or Gehenna that Jesus speaks of frequently in the Gospels. Now, it's important for us to remember as well that hell is not Hades. Remember, we talked about Hades when we talked about Sheol. And I'm not going to review all that because that's a long and fairly involved discussion. But Hades is not hell. Hades in the New Testament is the temporary place of punishment of the wicked. So, the parable in Luke 16, I think I give that as the reference there, specifically Luke 16, 23. Remember, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus dies and goes to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man dies and goes to Hades. So Hades is the place of temporary punishment of the wicked until the return of Jesus Christ. Remember the return of Jesus Christ, the end of the age, final judgment. These are all connected. All of these take place at relatively the same time. Jesus ends this age by coming again and judges all humanity. So everyone who is being temporarily punished in Hades stands before God, stands before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, and then enters hell, the place of eternal punishment. So Hades is the place of temporary punishment, where the wicked are kept right now awaiting final judgment, but hell is the place of eternal punishment. A spiritual realm that began with the natural reality of the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem in terms of 
concept and understanding. Okay? Any questions or comments about this? Yeah, please. I have a question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, Floor. We'll pass Eva in the mic while you ask a question, Floor. Okay. Um, I'm not seeing the connection that you had between Jesus and um, the 11 times that he referred to uh, Gehenna. Um, I, I must have missed something or, or was writing something down when you said it. Well, the word Gehenna, if, you, if you're reading the New Testament in Greek, the yeah. word Gehenna occurs 12 times. Okay. Gehenna is a Greek word. Of the 12 times that it occurs in the New Testament, 11 times Jesus, Jesus. is saying it. Jesus okay. is talking about Gehenna. And we'll see that. You know, if you look down the sheet there, you see Matthew 5, Matthew 10, Matthew 18. Those are passages where Gehenna is mentioned. All of those are passages where Jesus is speaking. So of the 12 times that the word Gehenna or the English word hell is used in the New Testament, 11 of those 12 times Jesus himself is talking about it. So that's the idea that nobody spoke of it more. And so we shouldn't think that, oh, hell is a human invention or hell is something that, you know, nasty Christians made up or hell is a twisting of the truth. No one talks about it more than Jesus. And in fact, when we expand and look at the place of outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal punishment, Jesus is mentioning that way more than 11 times. Nobody talks more about eternal punishment than Jesus Christ. <laughs> Nobody. Not the apostles. Not the rest of the New Testament. This is on the lips of Jesus more than any other voice in the New Testament. And so we can never, ever, ever give any weight to the lie that a loving Jesus doesn't send people to hell. That a loving God doesn't send people to hell. That's just wrong. Okay? So does that make sense now, Flora? Well, I mean, I understand that part, but I was thinking about the Gehenna where the kings, like, killed their, um, you know, their children, you know, burned them up and stuff like that. I mean, that's, was that considered that, like hell on earth? No, that's just the Old Testament background. So, in other words, where did this word come from? It came from word, there. This word came from the Hebrew of the Valley of Hinnom. But like okay. I say... So originally, when you were talking about it, you were actually talking about the valley outside of Jerusalem. But now, when Jesus is talking about it, he's no longer talking about a valley outside of Jerusalem. He's talking okay. about the place of eternal punishment. That's just giving the background. Well, wh where do we get the word Gehenna from? Well, we get okay. it from the Hebrew that was originally describing a real place. And that real place became equal with burning, judgment, wickedness, punishment, those were all the connotations. So when Jesus is describing the place of eternal punishment, this became an incredibly useful word to use because the listeners would have thought of that awful valley outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus is saying that's similar to the place of eternal punishment. Okay? Does that make sense now? Yes, yes, it does. Thank, thank you. No, thank you for asking that because if something's not thank clear... You. We want to pause and, and make it as clear as possible. So, yeah, Ephraim, you had a, a question or a comment? Uh, I was 
say something about the eternal punishment, one of the things that, that caught my attention in my life, uh, that there is uh, a reality there, that that's why we're sitting in here and walking in the Lord, because it's reality. Because my sin will be, if I don't repent, it will be ending in, in a place that is darkness or hell or infierno. Uh, and it's real. And, uh, and I think that's why we are here. Uh, eternal life and eternal punishment is the two realities that God is, is speaking in, through the world so clearly into our lives. And uh, I, I don't have no problem with eternal punishment. You say that sometimes people, they really have trouble with that because it's really hard. But uh, that's the, the other side of the, uh, and the darkness. It's the, the, the final punishment or the final de decision in our life. You wouldn't walk in the Lord as that. And the other side is the, the eternal life that we spend uh, with Christ. Uh, it makes sense because sin and the goodness of the Lord is two, two different things and uh, we choose. That's why we walk this walk because having an understanding the goodness of the Lord and the reality of spending eternity in hell and uh, it will be uh, uh, terrible. And uh, for myself, I, I don't want to be ending my life in, uh, in hell or punishment uh, that God has for us. And that's that's what we are here and made the decision to walk in the Lord. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And, you know, as you were speaking, Efrain, you know, why is it that Jesus speaks so much about it? Because he's warning people. He's warning people and saying, avoid this place. Do what is necessary not to end up here. So like Ted was saying before, you know, as Jesus is speaking of hell or Gehenna, he actually is speaking in love because he's telling humanity as Ephraim was just saying this is real and if you don't do something dramatic surrender your life to me give your life to me follow me this is where you are going to end up and so part of why Jesus is speaking about it is to give a warning to humanity to say because of me you can avoid this place because of me, you don't have to experience eternal punishment. So absolutely, Ephraim, what you were saying is, is, is spot on. You know, the Lord is speaking of this to make sure that humanity is given the opportunity to hear of this, to know that it's real, and to know that Jesus provides a way to avoid this. And as Ted was saying earlier, talking about punishment and judgment and love, Certainly here, every time that Jesus is mentioning hell or outer darkness or the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth or the place of eternal fire, all of these are places that Jesus talks about. He's doing it to give humanity an opportunity to escape that. And of course, from this lens, this is why Jesus went to the cross. You know, when we talk about being saved, what did Jesus save us from? Well, he saved us from death he saved us from sin he saved us from the world but he saved us from hell he saved us from hell and so absolutely if what you were saying 
we need to understand that Jesus is talking about this all the time in the Gospels to give humanity an opportunity to, first of all, know that it's there and then to do what is necessary to avoid it, which is to follow him, to put your trust in him. You know, I'm sure I've told you many, many times, this is what got me saved. This is what got me saved. A tract that had a guy being thrown into the lake of fire. And the Holy Spirit told me, that's you. That's you. I got saved because I knew I was going to hell. I knew it because the Holy Spirit revealed that truth to me. I knew I was going to hell. And like Ephraim said, I also knew I did not want to go there. And so I accepted Jesus Christ. And I repented and asked him to save me and forgive me. And he did. Hell saved me. I was saved from hell, but the truth of hell, the reality of hell, is what brought me to Christ. Now, again, it's not the only way to preach the gospel, but it certainly is one of the ways to preach the gospel. I mean, if Jesus is talking about hell all the time, it certainly better be part of how we present the gospel. You know, one of the pressures that our culture puts on us is don't say anything that's offensive. Don't say anything that will ruffle feathers. Don't say anything that might, you know, not be pleasant and easy. Well, the truth of it is, if you're preaching that gospel, you're only preaching half the gospel. Because hell is a necessary part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the only part. But it is a necessary part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if in our preaching we never speak of hell, we never mention hell, then we are not preaching the full gospel. And again, nobody talked about this more than Jesus. Not even close. Not even close. So let's look at a couple of these passages. Matthew chapter 5. Yeah. Oh yeah, please, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I didn't know you were going to move on, but oh, as you and Ephraim were talking about... Um, the two destinations, eternal life and eternal judgment. It's just uh, the verse from the verses from Jude really jumped out at me in my mind. And he, he Jude 21, he says, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So the mercy of Jesus leads to eternal life. And then he goes on and he says, you have mercy on some who are doubting, saving others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So it's the same mercy that uh, leads to eternal life in Christ that it adjures us to use that mercy to, to snatch people out of the fire because there is eternal judgment. Amen. Amen. I mean, it's one of the most incredible displays of God's mercy, that he's rescued us from the punishment that we deserve. And it isn't just punishment and misery in this life. That's part of it. But far more significant is that eternal punishment. Absolutely, he's rescued us from that. Well, let's look. We're getting, we're getting close to the end of time. So let's look at a couple of these places. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list because this is not all 11 places where Jesus mentions hell. But this just kind of gives us a sense of it being an essential part of the teaching ministry of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 and 30. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So a couple of key points here. Jesus is saying, look, sin is going to send you to hell. I mean, it's hard to read those two verses and and not get that connection. Sin is going to send you to hell. So sin is righteously, justly punished by an eternity in hell. So Jesus says, do what is ever necessary to separate yourself from sin in this life. And he uses the drastic example of cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. Jesus is speaking in in shockingly graphic terms to say, do whatever you have to do to separate yourself from sin. Why? Because if you don't, sin is going to send you into hell. Now, of course, we realize as the gospel unfolds and Jesus goes to the cross, far more radical than someone cutting off their hand, far more radical than someone plucking out their eye, is the eternal Son of God dying in our place on a cross. Far more dramatic, far more drastic is the Father willingly allowing His Son to die for us. But there also is a component just of daily living. Do whatever it takes to avoid temptation. Do whatever it takes to keep yourself from sin. Be as ruthless and dramatic and as harsh with the flesh as needs be to avoid sinning. That's what Jesus is saying here. Another interesting point is Jesus says, avoid having your body thrown into hell. Remember, we talked about the general resurrection, that even wicked people are raised to an eternal body. Well, here's a place where Jesus makes reference to that. He says it's better to lose part of your body now than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Again, implying this idea that all of humanity is given a resurrection body. Okay? Let's jump to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Another place where Jesus makes reference to Gehenna. Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 28. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus is saying, don't ultimately fear anyone or anything in this life, but fear the one who can eternally destroy in the next. And again, that idea of body and soul. Your immaterial self, your soul or your spirit, your physical body, both of them are cast into hell. Okay? Now quickly what I want to do here is just pause for a second because The way that the English translates this, it says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So if we read that, we may think that what Jesus is saying is that eventually, when you are thrown into hell, you are completely destroyed. You no longer exist. Right? If we think of something being destroyed, we may think of it no longer existing. The word for this is annihilation. Okay? 
Annihilation means to completely and totally cause something to no longer exist. Okay? So remember we said that this concept of eternal punishment for some is very, very difficult to accept. So there are certain folks who say there's no way that God can punish people forever. Either immediately or at some point, he must annihilate them. He must cause them to no longer exist. Because that's more merciful than having someone suffer for all eternity. So one of the things that certain folks have done to sort of soften the idea of eternal punishment is to say, well, God must eventually or even immediately annihilate the wicked. They no longer exist. The only ones who live eternally are those who are saved. We, of course, are assured of spending eternity with Christ. The wicked, they argue, maybe are punished for a time or maybe not punished at all, but their ultimate punish is, is that they cease to exist. Okay? Another way that some have tried to soften this is to say that eventually everyone is saved. Because they simply cannot conceptualize God punishing someone forever after a certain period of time of being punished, they will be saved. In fact, some people believe that even Satan and demons will eventually be saved because God is so good and so, so merciful. So the two main ways that folks have tried to soften this is either to say everyone will be saved or they will eventually be annihilated. Now again, the English translation here may seem to say, well, that's a, that's a plausible re reading. Again, verse 28, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Isn't it possible that here when Jesus says destroy, he means annihilate? He means cause someone to no longer exist. Well, we've got to look at the Greek word that stands behind it. Does this Greek word ever have the sense of cause something to no longer exist? Well, as far as this word is used in the New Testament, it never means that. It never means that. It never means to take something that exists and so destroy it that it no longer exists again. Generally, what it means is, as you see there on the sheet, to destroy but not to annihilate, to perish or to lose. But to destroy in the sense that it is loss of any value, loss of any purpose. So let's look at a couple places where this word is used. In Luke chapter 15, verse 24, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, my son was dead, he's now alive. My son was lost, but now is found. The very same word that Jesus uses here, the father in the parable of the lost son says, my son was apolumi. My son was lost. He wasn't annihilated. He didn't cease to exist. He was separated from the father. The relationship was destroyed, but now he has been restored. So sometimes the word apolumi means to lose. Okay? It can also mean to become useless. In Luke chapter 5 verse 37. 
Jesus is talking again in a parable, and he says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins because old wineskins have been stretched as far as possible, and new wine, when it ferments, it expands. So you need to have wineskins that stretch. So if you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wine, the new wine will start to expand, and the new wineskins, epolumi, they are destroyed. That doesn't mean they cease to exist. That means they are no longer of any value for holding wine. They are ruined. They have perished. The exact same word that Jesus uses here, he uses to describe old wineskins that have been destroyed by the expansion of new wine. In John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus uses this word to describe bread or food. He says, do not work for bread that apolumi. Do not work for bread that perishes. Well, if you keep bread in a bread box or keep bread somewhere for months, it doesn't disappear. It becomes moldy and blue and nasty or dry or brittle. It spoils or perishes. It's not annihilated. Okay? One other way this word is used in the New Testament is simply to kill. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Joseph is being warned that Herod is trying to kill the baby Jesus. So sometimes apolumi means to kill. But if you kill someone, you don't annihilate them. They don't cease to exist. They're simply no longer living in their natural body. So again, if you read Matthew 10.28 and other passages similar to it in the English, you may think that destruction means annihilation. But the word that is used there, nowhere in Scripture does it ever mean annihilation. Nowhere does it ever mean to cease to exist. It means to lose its benefit, to lose its value, to be actually lost, to perish, to spoil, to be ruined. And so it would be wrong to read something like this and say what Jesus is teaching is that the wicked are eventually annihilated and eventually they cease to exist. Okay? Now, we're out of time. There are other passages of Scripture that teach even more clearly that punishment is eternal. And so, this may be a little bit technical because, you know, we're not Greek scholars, but all this is to say that what could be potentially a reading of the English doesn't really bear the weight of the Greek word behind it. That's all this is saying. But there are many of passages of Scripture that talk about punishment being eternal. That it is not something that is temporary. It's not something that ends. The wicked are never annihilated. They never cease to exist. There's nothing in Scripture that says only the righteous are immortal and the wicked are mortal. There's not a whisper of that in Scripture. So again, even though we may think, oh, that's a compassionate heart that says, oh, I wish that the wicked were not punished forever. Don't do God any favors. Don't, don't make God what you want him to be. Don't tell God how he should or shouldn't punish people because you're doing God no favors when you deviate from the clear truth of Scripture. 
And of course, these passages that are listed here, some of them explicitly talk in terms of punishment being eternal. I just wanted to pause here with this one because the, the English does, you, you could see it would be a reasonable understanding of destroy both body and soul in hell, meaning, okay, they're, they're destroyed, they're gone, they're obliterated. But that's not exactly at all what that word apolomi ever means. Okay? Well, we're going to pause here tonight. We'll pick it up, finish out eternal punishment, and then again, the last theme that we need to address is the new heavens and the new earth. And so we want to take as much time as we need to finish out this idea of eternal punishment, but then we will jump into the glorious future that awaits all of creation and the sons and daughters of God, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, because the men's ministry is concluded, they're not meeting again to the fall, and because we are making sure that we're going to be done before our first outreach, which is June the 16th, we will meet next week. This, this study will meet next week, June the 7th, Wednesday, June the 7th. If we finish everything on June the 7th, then we're done. But if we don't, we will also meet on June the 14th. Because I'm not going to leave, you know, one half of a lecture for the fall. So if need be, we will meet on June the 14th. I think we can probably get most stuff done by next week. But if not, we will meet the next two weeks. And then we will not do any sort of study during the summer. Men's ministry is on pause as well because we are strongly encouraging everyone to participate and attend the Friday night outreaches, okay? So definitely June the 7th, possibly June the 14th as well, but we will see how things go next week. And yes, my wife is horrified because June the 14th is our anniversary, but I'm confident we can celebrate on the 13th and the 15th and be fully excited about that celebration. My wife is certainly very demonstrative and emotional. You on Zoom couldn't see it, but there was this ghastly look and arms thrown up in the air. I mean, you'd think I was telling her a house had burned down, which I hope it has. So, so yes, if we meet on June the 14th, definitely wish my wife happy anniversary because it is her anniversary, as she likes to tell me. So anyways, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And Lord, even though we're dealing with some, some heavy issues with the punishment of the wicked, eternal punishment, uh, final judgment, what happens to unbelievers at that moment, God, we, we don't want to ignore this or deny this because it is part of your truth revealed to us. And God, I pray that we really would use this as a motivation to speak the truth to folks to tell folks that hell is real, to tell them if they don't repent, if they don't change their ways, if they don't turn to Jesus, that's where they will spend eternity. We're not looking to be critical and harsh and angry and mean and nasty, but Lord, we are looking to warn people even as you did. You warned people when you were on this earth and we want to warn people as well. And Jesus, we just, we thank you that you have saved us from hell. Jesus, you have saved us from eternal separation from you. And we thank you for that. 
And Lord, this is such an incredible thing you've done. This news is so good. We don't want to keep it to ourselves. We should want to share it with others. So give us the boldness, give us the humility, give us the grace to do that. And Jesus, it is in your name, in your name alone, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. For those who are here in person, thank you for everyone who's on Zoom. Enjoy the rest of your night. And Lord willing, we will be back next Wednesday, June the 7th.